Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind-the-scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. Well, welcome, everybody. We have a pretty exciting podcast recording for you tonight. Um, I am Dawn Wilson, president of NAMPA, and I have here with me Julie, who runs our marketing efforts, and Mark Graycroft and Ron Hayes, who are our partners from Wild and Exposed to give you our podcast every month. And we have special guests tonight. Um, we have Joe and Marianne McDonald, who have generously agreed to give up their late evening back on the East Coast um, to kind of chat with us tonight. So. Uh, welcome everybody and thank you for joining us and let's get right into our conversation this evening. The goal that we have for everybody tonight is that, you know, on a monthly basis, I get together with the guys from Wild and Exposed and we record some podcast episodes and we bring on guests or we talk about various topics. Tonight, we're actually going to give you kind of a behind the scenes look at how we produce those episodes. Uh, so, you know, a little kind of a little insight into what goes into producing these as well as your opportunity to submit your questions in a live live feed so we have as i mentioned we have joe and marianne here so what have you guys been up to i, I noticed today just for the last couple of days uh, i'm not sure if it's joe or marianne that updates the website but i noticed there were some comments about how you're going through and editing dates and changing dates and you hadn't you had noticed that you hadn't seen your website in a little while. And I think we've all kind of had a, a strange year in 2020 for what we thought we were going to be doing versus what we actually wound up doing. So what have you, you two been up to lately? That's me. So, well, we've been home. It's good to see everybody tonight. We've now been home 14 months. So we say that we've been grounded um, with COVID and everything. Well, we haven't had it, but because of COVID and it's actually, we've actually enjoyed our time at home because for the last 10, 12, 15 years, we've been traveling almost 32 weeks a year. So what's happened in 2020 is all of our trips were rescheduled after February and many of them are now hopefully starting this year in 2021. But even that is being rescheduled and canceled. Um, we just heard that um, the Falkland Islands have suspended all flights from Chile until October 1st. So that's starting to get pretty close to when we're supposed to go to the Falklands in the end of November. So we're still adjusting as things change. Um, we are running some workshops here at the house this summer and hopefully by August we'll be traveling and doing other things, but it's been as with the many of our colleagues, we have been in flux. I mean, you can't plan anything. You can't plan the future. You can't send out information on a trip because you don't know what to send out. You know, and I have everybody basically waiting to make airline reservations until something gets confirmed. So, but we've been enjoying ourselves here at Hoot Hollow and Joe's been busy, so it's been okay. Very good. And how have you two been, Ron and Mark? How have things been? your neck of the woods ron's i'm assuming ron you're in wyoming and mark you're still up in canada at the moment i am locked in canada at the moment yes yes 
<laughs> a year and a bit of adjustments for sure but it's been a beautiful spring we actually had snow flurries today you i would have been pennsylvania too recently i suspect had some yep. snow yes so that was a bit yep, of a we had snow too magnolias are, are starting to bloom and now there's snow on them it's 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 been a beautiful spring and today super relevant right get together with like-minded nature wildlife photographers is earth day so we have to celebrate that and you know to remind people i i do this frequently for better or for worse but in my mind always for better it's just the biodiversity of life on this planet is mind-boggling if we just think about it from the smallest little intricacies airborne insects underwater large mammals i mean let's celebrate that and care about planet earth and and today is the day to focus on that and to me part of the irony of that is it's earth day and it brings so many people's attention to the subject but let's hold on to it for more than a day let's think about it every day and i did forget to actually say happy earth day to everybody yeah, today. absolutely i was actually just finishing up a second I usually only do one Facebook post a day, but I was going to add a second one today for Earth Day, and I had a last quick edit I wanted to do before I did that. Anyway, not about me. <laughs> so, but yeah, we've actually been having some snow here too in Colorado. We've been talking about how it's this April's just been unusual for Colorado, and they are. I saw earlier today on the news that we're looking at actually breaking the the snow total for for April. So that's a good oh. thing because we've. We have right. several, most of the state's been in a, in a pretty bad drought. So so that's a welcome piece of news for once. It's always it's nice special. to get the spring storms. Um, I'm home now, but I've been able to get out and travel a little bit uh, just on my own. But it's nice to get the spring storm because you know as soon as they go away, the bluegrasses are going to be greening up and starting to to change the landscape from that drab fall and winter brown that we have here in Wyoming and that's certainly what's happening you almost think if the temperatures were a little bit different that it almost be time to start seeing antelope fawns but not quite the greens are coming and the grouse are strutting and turkeys are strutting so it's it's been a good spring yeah the Numbers elk here in to town are starting starting to look a little little roundish so yeah they'll have their baby soon it's getting to that almost that time and owlets what about owlets in hoot hollow are are yeah, there no, owls no, no, no. Go ahead. Oh, please. we're, we're oh. going to get into how how you continue to get along so wonderfully well shortly but please go ahead <laughs> no after you after you <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, it. so I'll go. <laughs> the um, we have um, the who the great horned owls. Their babies should be just about branchlings at this point. They're somewhere in our hollow or up in the mountain behind us. We haven't been able to find them. Screech owl has been pushed out of its box by a kestrel, so I'm not sure where it's going to nest. But all these summer birds are starting to come back and are starting to sing around the yard. Um, our daffodils and all of the redbud trees, everything has just been so beautiful this year. Like you said, it's been a great spring. Um, so it's been nice. So uh, when you said about great horned owls, uh, a couple of years ago, we heard about a bald eagle nest that was near our house, but we didn't know where it was and we just had vague directions. And then last year when we were putting up a bluebird trail, 
uh, one of the landowners said, oh, it's right across the way. And we rode by that on bicycle X number of times, but we were always looking for bluebirds and mockingbirds or meadowlarks, whatever. And it was out another 300 yards. So now we knew where this nest was and it's clear and in the open. And then last year, a great horned owl took over. And uh, I think because it didn't successfully nest. And this year I checked and there were no eagles, but with the spotting scope, there was a great horned owl on it instead. So uh, um, the fact that for a change, we're home. Uh, we know of three different nests of great horned owls that uh, in the area that up until now, we, you know, we didn't know where they were or anything like that. So it's been an advantage for us to be home in that regard. Definitely been a great year that way. Go ahead, Ron. I was just going to say, let's back up a little bit. And uh, I know there are a lot of folks in Nampa that that know the two of you, but just let us know how you got started and, and then how you got started photographing together. Or did that happen simultaneously? Well, I'll start because I, I will have a chance to talk for a little bit. And uh, <laughs> I've been doing this longer than Mary. So uh, I started when I was about 13 and I, I wanted to be a herpetologist. So I, I did pen and ink drawings of reptiles and then I got a camera and it was just a Yushika Lynx 5000 rangefinder camera. And I made the mistake of taking a picture of a groundhog one day that was in our yard and it came out as this little speck, you know, just on the, and I was so disappointed that uh, I contacted all the cameras companies at that point, like Kodak and Pentax and, uh, Mamaya Secor, and you know, there, there were a whole bunch at that time. And uh, e eventually I settled on that I needed a single lens reflex camera. And uh, my dad was able to turn in the camera we had at this department store with full credit. I don't know how he did it. And I got the single lens reflex camera. So I was like 14 at this point. And when we were driving home that day, and, you know, it was still, you know, like $180 for this camera. This is 1967 or so. And uh, my dad was grousing about how much money we just spent and things. And, and I said, well, you know, dad, it's not the camera. It's the lens that I need. I need a telephoto lens. And uh, he almost threw me out of the car. It was, uh, and Mary's going, hurry up, hurry up. So go ahead, Marianne. Oh, honestly. But that's how I got started. He's just so old with his stuff. But anyways, so I ended up, I, Joe came and talked to our camera club <laughs> or our, our bird club. I took my first workshop from him 35 years ago and 34 years ago, we decided that I fell in love with my instructor, the rest is history. And here we are 34 years later together working. Mary should have been a good hunter because she knew, she sure knows how to stalk. <laughs> <laughs> it's such so, a fun story it is i'm getting a, a comment so this is the first time that we are doing a live podcast so we do have a little bit of video and audio hiccup most of that probably is due to the uh web speed that each of us have individually i think you know those of us with faster internet service um, are not going to experience that, but some of us will, and it's just going to unfortunately have to be something that we deal with throughout. Um, going back to 
boy, I don't know. In today's world, that I'm, I'm not sure that that would be acceptable. You called her a stalker, Joe, but you were picking up on your student. <laughs> there you go. There you go. You know. Well, hey, come on. <laughs> but it was like we we realized we would we could possibly work together, so we started to work together, and then realized that we might make a pretty good team. So. Um, you know, when we went into this together, I was still working part time as a medical research person at Hershey Medical Center. And it was a big decision for us to, to see if we could do this ourselves full time because we had no money. I mean, we had been living with family, then we rented an apartment. And when we decided that we could do this, we came and bought Hoot Hollow and used all of Joe's money. I had no money at the time. So we started out with less than a thousand dollars to our name to start this business. Yeah, here I am, this this freelance photographer, you know, making my living from stock photography and agencies and whatever. She has a full-time job. So I think I have easy street here. You know, she's working at a medical center. I got it made. And then what does she do? You I know? quit. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> That's what my boyfriend says to me. He's like, you left a good paying job to do this. I'm like, yes, and look how happy I am. Well, and my, he always said he can't believe my dad allowed us to get together after I, you know, I left this great profession to live off of nothing. So yeah, what can I say? if I was her father, I would have killed me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Given your travels, I beg to differ. What you What you two have experienced on this planet is simply wonderful. I mean, just mind-blowing we can get into those those destinations and trips and and it's worked for you because you are from what i i read online and what the atmosphere has said the most prolific husband and wife wildlife and nature photography team in the u.s today so that's phenomenal congratulations and probably one of the reasons for that is all the other ones have divorced you know so here we still are <laughs> Well, but we have testament. worked hard and, and you know talking about today is earth day we feel very blessed and very lucky for what we've been able to do because we basically made you know this our profession we knew that our maybe our forte was with people and workshops and photo tours and we've been able to see the world and we've been able to see it together and that's what's made it so much fun all these years and and why we still love it so much and we love to share it because you know, as you were saying, Mark, it's it's the world is so incredible and there's so much out there. And to be able to experience it and to record it and to share it, it's been great. We've been really fortunate, too, in the fact that when we got into this, we were one of the few that even did photo tours or anything like that. And uh, it, it is actually laughable to look at images that we sold or that were were uh, picked up by stock agencies back when we started that today would be rejects you know mm -hmm. that of uh of what people are shooting so the bar back then was really low it it really was and uh but the gear was was very inferior as well and back when we started if you were a craftsman you know if you knew exposure if you could compose because what you saw on that slide is what the editors saw. And that was, you know, that was it. You know, there was no editing. There was no uh, uh, Photoshop or, you know, raw raw tweaking or whatever. So it was, 
you know, it was, it was, if you were, if you were competent at it, you could be successful at it. And, but back then when we started, uh, and I, I started in high school, so I, I, I kind of like build up all along, but, um, even up to like maybe 25 years ago, it was thought that maybe it would take someone about six years to to become successful you know that they'd have enough stock images that money would be coming in and actually support and then about what 10 15 years ago it was more like 12 years before that would be and now mm. with uh with digital there's no more photography there's like no that, more really like, stock sales or or photo sales so to speak so um you know it's completely changed everybody's had to reinvent themselves in this past year with covid with no trips no travel no income you really had to reinvent yourself yeah and it's not that there's not there's not uh photo sales out there there still are but Small. back in the day yeah. with stock photography what what you could get with stock photos um you could basically live on for mm -hmm. you know that would be your income and right. that has really really dropped so dramatically yeah that's, that's a very good thing to, to point that out yeah the industry is still there but it's a fraction of what it was and to, to get to garner the same wages is is very challenging to find and do like it was 20 years ago without a doubt yeah mm -hmm. it has changed and, and it's very hard to get into because it has shrunk so much so you know for the most part in the stock industry people that are there have been there unless it's some new direction you know there's some new there's some new styles and directions and marketing angles that some people have have managed to succeed in but yeah that, that's very accurate it's it's a tough tough sell now for the stock industries and this year a point that i always i lived by and what i always told people when i was doing when we would be doing workshops or, or photo tours is for personally i never shot for for sales for stock i shot what pleased me and it was whether and i was lucky enough that i i could support ourselves from what was my passion but it was the passion that I was shooting, which mm -hmm. I felt was like celebrating, paying homage to the things that I love, the, the wildlife. And, you know, the market responded to that, but uh, it wasn't a monetary thing I went into. It was just something that kind of like slipped in in that regard. So even today, people that are photographing, I, I, I think it's silly to think of it in monetary terms. You're doing it because you love it. And that mm -hmm. is the objective. It's it's similar as what we've said to people as well. If you if you bowl or you golf or you play softball, you're not thinking about going in the show or the PGA or the professional golfing or bowling. You're doing it because you're having fun and you love it. And that's where bottom line it should be. And then if things go from there, fine. But so there. Wisdom. <laughs> that's fa that's fantastic advice. Yeah, for sure. That's a good analogy. So we we talk about often that everybody's got a little bit different route into this world. You know, the folks that do do it full time. Was that intentional to go with the go the tour route with the two of you, or is that just kind of how you saw, you know, you working best together and and maybe fitting in? I'll, yeah, I'll start. Ahead, yeah, start. Um, when I taught school for six years and I got laid off, probably because I wasn't serious. And uh, anyway, uh, it was an enrollment drop, and they 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 asked me. 
and I self-published the book, and it it, it was uh, very well received around the country. And I got a mailing list from that. And uh, again, as a freelancer, I'm doing nature clubs and bird things, which is how I met Mary. And when I'd be giving these these uh, like lectures at a like a nature center, people would come up and say, uh, "Do you ever take people on trips or whatever?" And, and uh, I met a guy who was a veterinarian down in Florida who actually was doing that, and he bought my book, and I visited him, and he said, boy, you ought to do such and such, and I, I contacted his travel agent with that, and that's how I basically got started. And then, when doing the workshops, I met Mary, and now... I had to convince him that he needed me, and um, it's worked out very well since. But when we when we got together, and I said I was doing medical research, um, because Hershey's part of Penn State, at 10 years I was vested in state retirement, so I went part-time, but it became really hard to be away for part-time and then come back and do 50, 60 hours a week with research. So one night at 11.30 at night in the upstairs hallway of our rental, we sat down and said, okay, what can we do? What on are we good on the floor? Because we had no furniture. What can we do? What are we best at? And we both knew that we were good with people and good with workshops and good with photo tours. So we decided, and we wanted to move to a place where we could walk out the back door to photograph and where we could teach from our house because we were going up into the Poconos at that time. So when we decided this was it, we can do this. And that's why we got into it. You know, we, we were doing six, seven, eight weeks of workshops here at the house to start. And then the tours just kind of built from there. And then as, as Joe said, as digital kind of came in and stock, stock sales went out, we did more and more travel to kind of make up the difference in, in keeping the business going. And, um, but this is how tenuous it was when, when, we, when we got together on this and we bought Hoot Hollow. We bought a place where if, uh, if we couldn't afford anything, I could go outside without having to pay for gas money and be able to photograph outside. There's a woods here. I could cut wood and heat our house. And if I had to, I could shoot deer to eat. I mean, it was really- And we, and we, bought, we bought vegetables from our Amish neighbors and we bought meat from our farmer neighbors. So but it, it we really, okay. it, it really was that uh, we moved here because if we had to be survivalist because no money was coming in, we'd have a possibility of doing that until I got the welcome to Walmart job, you know, but, uh, <laughs> uh, oh, here we go. So, our cat just turned on our copier. So the copier's going. So anyways, oh. we have two cats now. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what Hoot Hollow is for those that don't know. Well, it's, it's our house and, uh, we have, we have, uh, just four acres, but uh, about maybe a couple hundred square feet our yard, if it's even that. And the rest of it is field and forest and ponds and uh, streams and, and woods. And uh, uh, basically, it's it's uh, it's it's landscaped, if you will, just naturally. And uh, uh, like I said, we have the little stream going through, which goes through the hollow, but uh, uh, I, since we've had this COVID thing, uh, I've taken a shot a day that I've posted on Facebook, and 
I would say about 70 or 80% of, of the material, which is now I think going into day 111, at least 70% of it has been shot right here in Hoot Hollow. So we designed, so, we designed our property for the photography. So we have all sorts of bird feeders around and feeders for the squirrels and for the raccoons and, and amphibians for, and, and reptiles. Yeah, so um, we made this a photo destination so that we first taught in our basement, then we built a teaching building in the woods. And then with digital, we added a whole other three-story addition to the house. So we have the computer lab in the basement, which at first we had 10 computer stations and now everybody just brings their laptop. So um, so we made this that, that when people came here to learn photography, they could shoot right here. And we we're lucky enough that there's a farm vacation bed and breakfast down the road where our groups stay. And he's an auctioneer. So their farm is this incredible Americana thing. We have beautiful countryside with farms and woods and everything. So we don't have to go anywhere to photograph and everybody can come here and they have come here from all over the country and the world to learn photography and to be at Hoot Hollow. And we have, a, you know, we, we live in a, a fairly rural area and our, our neighbors are saints. They're wonderful. So we have complete access to, you know, all the land. The one neighbor, uh, I was going to build a uh, kingfisher nesting site and I, I went over and I explained what I wanted to do. And uh, as I was walking away, he goes, run that by me again. <laughs> so so we have a $600 mound of dirt for kingfishers that they never used, but that's okay, you know. But, um, but last year with this whole thing with COVID, we went around to all the neighbors, both English and Amish, asked them if we could put up bluebird boxes. So we've got this whole bluebird network so all the Amish neighbors now know us, all the English neighbors know us, and we hear about all sorts of things going on on their land. We just went and bought more boxes to put up to more neighbors. So we've really kind of improved the environment and the habitat around here for everything. And, and it's funny, the Amish kids now come up and say, did you check the boxes, you know? So everybody's into it, it's good. But, you know, because we have kind of a, a different profession and we've been on TV and blah, 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 that um, a lot of folks know us. We don't know them necessarily, but you know, like we'll be at a gas station or something. Oh, you're, you're home. Oh, you're home. You you're know, the photographer, and it's like, who is that? But, but anyway. But then you know, we'll get calls that, hey, we got such and such or whatever. So it's just uh, we live in a beautiful place. I just yeah. love where we're at. So that's Hoot Hollow. Sounds like a nice place. It is. So we have yeah. had. A couple questions come in. Um, well, these two are from Terry Jackson. First of all, and you may not know the answer to this yet because it's still kind of up in the air, but when do you anticipate the African tours starting up again? Actually, this fall. They, those are three of the trips that we think will actually go off. Um, um, Tanzania is first, then Rwanda, then Kenya. And at least Tanzania and Rwanda look very favorable that they will go. Kenya right now is a little bit tentative, um, but they've actually been able to now not looking at Kenya, but at some of the other countries, especially Rwanda, they've been able to keep things under control. Um, it's pretty rigid with with tests going in while you're there to leave, um, you know, for the COVID, the negative COVID tests and stuff. 
but I do think they are going to go off. They may be some of the only trips that go off this year. We were supposed to be going to Brazil and Alaska. In August and September. And Alaska looks like it will go off, but Brazil looks a little tenuous uh, yeah. right now with that. And hopefully things will change, but you know, if not, we have Hoot Hollow. But I'm pretty sure Tanzania and I'm pretty sure Rwanda will go off for sure. And we're very, very hopeful that Kenya will too. We just talked to friends in Kenya and it's not as bad as we hear, you know, and I think as people are vaccinated and we all take precautions, I think we'll be okay. Will that be mandatory for your trips that the clients be vaccinated for these countries at point of entry? Not for us, but not from us, but for most of the countries, it's going to be mandatory. You're going to, you know, they keep talking about these vaccine passports. I think that is going to be the rule instead of the um, exception mm -hmm. that for international travel, you're going to have to have a vaccine. And I wouldn't be surprised if by this fall, we all have to have boosters. I mean, just like the flu vaccine. Mm -hmm. So um, I think with, with vaccines, it'll ease up some of the restrictions that are now in place. And I think I, I, I would not be surprised if countries like Rwanda, especially with us going to see the mountain gorillas, I know we're gonna have to wear masks from now on. And I bet you they mandate vaccines. I mean, I think that's gonna be mandatory. Mark, this is off the topic, but is that picture of the elk, was was that in Yellowstone behind you? No, that's in the Canadian Rockies in Alberta after a fire that happened there many years ago. Because it looks like a place in Yellowstone that we call the dead dog forest because the trees don't have any bark. They lost their bark. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this this was due to a forest fire. One side of the road burned, the other did not, and this heron went through the burn and it's actually that that series. I wish I could do it over. I did. It was it was digital time, but I would have shot so much more because with all of the fire, forest fires across North America, any wildlife in my portfolio that's in that kind of atmosphere and setting has sold really well for publication applications to illustrate those scenarios. So, but and it was the ghostly morning, all that kind of atmosphere stuff. Uh, Ron, speaking about Rwanda. Oh, I'm sorry, Ron, did no, Terry no, have another we'll, question? You said there were two questions. You're, you're muted. You're muted, Ron. And that's why we haven't done live. He's uh, just polite. He's very polite. <laughs> the other question that we had, kind of, you alluded to just a moment ago when you were talking about the mountain gorillas. He was asking about the mountain gorillas and. Um, any word on how they are doing in the COVID era, I guess? Um, I'm not quite sure how many people have been allowed in. Rwanda was in a lockdown for a while for different things. Um, I know that one of the groups that we have visited that, you know, Joe and I have both been honored with naming a baby gorilla and the Quita Azina naming ceremony. And the Hira group, was the one that Joe named his baby from. And the big um, silverback from that group, Moninha, there was a lightning strike in the family, the group, and he and several others were killed. And so that family group is in a little bit of flux right now. But as far as we know, we had, I had just seen a thing um, from the woman that we know is the CEO of the Diane um, Foster Gorilla Fund 
Um, they seem to be doing very well. Um, they've been continually monitored. Um, it's been very limited to people going. They cut down the number of, of people going to the groups. It had been eight for quite a while. It's down to six. I think it's going back to eight by the fall season. Like I said, I think everybody's going to have to have, we have to have um, negative COVID tests, you know, confirmed before we go see them. We're gonna have to wear masks, um, but they're doing good. Um, they did well. Um, as far as we know, nothing, it's actually been good for them. It's been good for a lot of the wildlife to have not quite so much human pressure on them, especially in like the Masai Mar in Kenya, and even in the Serengeti, the Ngorogoro Crater, the wildlife has actually flourished. But we also have to remember that the ecotourist dollar is very, very important for conservation in many areas. And a lot of the support staff and the people who work in the lodges had no income or anything. So we need to get tourism back to help support the locals, to help support the wildlife. It's all mixed in as one. We've heard the same thing from, we've had a couple of guests talking about um, the Himalayas and the, the snow leopards, and they had worked, you know, over the past decade to develop some ecotourism over there, um, bring some money into the communities, bring some money into the, the folks that are there and have the opportunity to keep an eye on and and monitor, you know, the, the successes of the ecology of the snow leopard. And that money has been dried up this year. So they've been trying to raise some funds to be able to send over to kind of supplement the the loss. And I know several groups have done the same with different areas in Africa as well to try to at least supplement some of that income lost. And, uh, you know, a lot of the camps that people in North America owned, they were required to continue to not only pay for the, the camp lease, but also pay the staff if they wanted to maintain those leases. So I know that they're trying to keep some some money coming in. And, and that is, like you say, or can be a limiting factor. Once the wildlife loses value, then other things start to happen. So it's, it's something that we don't want to see happen. I, I think um, the snow leopards might be in a better situation there because the tourism for that has become a, a relatively recent phenomenon. And the fact that we have this hiccup right now with uh, travel, I would hope that the villagers that, that are in these alpine areas are seeing that, yes, it's a hiccup, but cash was coming in here. These cats have value. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I see that uh, a far greater possibility of the locals actually valuing a resource for its future potential as opposed to places like in Africa where the immediate cash return on poaching would supersede a uh, long-term kind of investment. So uh, at least with the snow leopards, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty positive on that. Yeah, we had been, we had done snow leopards four or five times. So we got to know some of the locals and stay at some of the villages on homestays and some of the smaller ecotourist lodges. And um, they're very dedicated. The people who are there are very dedicated with the conservation and the snow leopards and everything. So, um, and one of the young men up there, he and his brother have a small tourist business and he's actually now doing um, some filming of the locals and how the snow leopards have impacted them on a positive way to show the world 
how this has helped them. So there's some good things have happened this past year, some bad things, but more good things hopefully than than the other way. Mm -hmm. Definitely some this adjustments. One, go was ahead, another Mark. question? Well, there is, but go ahead. All right, I just want to go and piggyback one more thing, if if not more, on R Rwanda, and that you too, and this is the number is is staggering. It's it's have the unofficial world record, researchers aside, for photographers for guerrilla treks to Rwanda of 106, at least at the time of this printing, I saw 106 each, to have been there, to have that experience with such incredible beings, not six times, not 40, 106 times. I mean, they must feel like family to you. How? Oh, it, it's wonderful. You know, I mean, we actually, there are some families like the Sabino family, which has been our first 50th, 75th, 100th trek. There are gorillas that I'm sure recognize us. I mean, you learn gorilla language. It's kind of fun. You know, the guides always like you to, to do crazy stuff, but you do vocalize for them. And there are some of the gorillas that we've known for this whole um, going on almost 20 years, because it was, I think, 2003 or four when we first started um that you can vocalize and they actually vocalize back um i'll tell you though we we earned that record because <laughs> when we started the tourism infrastructure was really bad the hotel that we would stay at our guide could speak english but no one else <laughs> did so we had uh in fact our outfitter said just plan on being wet the entire time. You'll be wet from the treks and you'll be wet in the room. And uh, we would sometimes give them our clothes to dry and they- They, they come back wet inside because they washed them inside and out. So you'd be putting on clothes that they were hanging in a basement that were now cold and clammy. We had either spaghetti or- Ham and cheese, cheese grilled ham and cheese. We lived on grilled ham and cheese sandwiches for breakfast grilled ham and cheese sandwiches and avocado salad for lunch, and then spaghetti and avocado salad for dinner. That was our three meals. Yeah. And it was wonderful, we loved it, but we were one of the first tourist groups there. So we kind of helped them learn that, well, you really need to dry the boots, you know, in the inside so you can put them on, don't wash them in the inside. You know, we used to use a lot of newspaper to help dry the boots from the inside and everything. A couple of things that we've done now have become like, you know, like like the, the stable in the tourist industry. Uh, I was the first group actually to be down in Jaguars uh, that I brought groups. And now, you know, there's there's a zillion people. Same with Pumas. Um, and one of the guys that, that, uh, that I met who was a, a local that then, you know, I started doing these tours, uh, he's now, becoming a filmer for the BBC. BBC. So it, it's really been great. Like the snow leopard guy that is now doing the filming of the locals and this other guy who's now gone from 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 someone like me. I call him my son because he's uh, about 20 years younger. I met him. He's wearing camouflage. I'm wearing camouflage. It's like love on at first sight. And uh, <laughs> bromance big time. And yeah, yeah, you know, right. we're uh, I mean, really kindred spirits. And he was down there in Torres del Paine because he loved it. You know, he was, and he was hoping to make a career of it. And then we got him started in the guiding. And now he's gone from guiding to filming. And it's really been a great success story. And, and we, we take a huge amount of 
pride. of satisfaction in that. You know, uh, just see people growing like that. It's been yeah, and really nice. When you were talking about Rwanda, there's people that we used to see along the road, kids that had drawn gorilla pictures in school, which we would buy, who then went on to be a porter to help carry your gear and stuff, who is now a gorilla tracker. You know, and so we've watched the progression of these people get into ecotourism to advance, to love what they're doing, to appreciate the nature. And it, it's it's kind of it's very rewarding for us to have all these like adopted kids all over the, the world who we've worked with since they were young. And now they're owning their own companies and stuff. Yeah, they, they think of me like their big brother. They think of no, me like no, their no, grandmother. No, no, you know, no. So. This is grandfather right now. <laughs> That's have you heard great. any discussion uh robert shapiro asked and this is you know with all these destinations that you guys travel to have you heard any discussion about the cdc card rather than the vaccine passport if that would be acceptable not yet not yet um we've been trying to keep up with that stuff we have some friends who are infectious disease specialists um who are pharmaceutical and you're like um pharma biochemical engineers in the pharmaceutical company um we've been trying to keep up with some of this stuff but i've stopped right now until they kind of get their act together because everything is changing so quickly with regulations with requirements with restrictions with whatever nobody knows yet so i think i honestly think by june or july there'll be a little bit more confirmation or mandates in place for knowing if the CDC card will be there, um, if it'll be a vaccine passport, um, if it'll be on your phone as a portable thing. Um, I th because the EU, everybody's kind of on their own track right now. Nobody's working together yet because, you know, our vaccine roll, roll has done pretty good in the US, EU was. And I just read this morning that they've now canceled their, their one big order of AstraZeneca vaccine, which is gonna put them way behind again. So I think until the, the major world orders get together to figure out something, and maybe the CDC now seems to be a little bit more in the forefront again, I think in the next month or two, things will become more in place and we'll know more. So that's the best answer I can give. Yeah, everybody's so uh, kind of like uh, chomping at the bit to travel and, and to get, you know, back out there and discover where you live. I have been I've been in hog heaven at home uh, for the first time in 30 years to actually be able to devote time to projects at home. And I think everyone has that capability, whether they even if they live in cities with you know, just in their outskirts or at parks or, you know, reserves. Uh, we don't have to be depressed about not traveling and not going to, to locations because there's a lot we can do at home. And in doing that, you might actually become a better photographer because you might be doing it far more often than you would if you're just doing a trip, you know, like two, two or three trips a year. Um, I'm... I'm a happy camper at home. Well, it's giving giving the earth a breather as well, right? I mean, for this year, the yeah. 
the air travel, the sea travel, all that being down so much, as much as we all miss parts of that, it, it has on this Earth Day, it, it, that's something to celebrate for the atmosphere and the world we live in. Well, and that and whole thing the BBC advice. just did with, yeah, well, the BBC just did that whole thing with recording the sounds that you couldn't even hear before because of all the noise and everything. And, and that's just a really special thing. I mean, even here, I mean, with, with reduced flights, we're kind of on the flight pattern from Philly and New York and, and all the Eastern you know cities. And we maybe saw two or three flights a day versus every 15 minutes. And to hear nature again, it was wonderful, you know, so to enjoy that has been a real pleasure as well. You're muted Going again, back to what you were just talking about. Um, oh, it's just Jill, delayed. Uh, I'm actually not. Um, going back to what you were just talking about, Joe, uh, with discovering, you know, around the home area, this question came in from Ted Orwig. Share a couple things that maybe have surprised you or have you had some surprise opportunities there at home? And then on your trips abroad, same question. Well, I'll give you the, the most immediate one today. Uh, uh, as At the first of the year, Mary challenged me to take a picture and post one every day. I wanted him out of my hair, so that got him out of the office and out of the house. And I'm so happy. And today, uh, because American goldfinches are now going into their summer plumage, I set up this thing to get a, you know, like a portrait of a, uh, a, a goldfinch, the real nice goldfinch. And I had, I had a, a lens coat blind over me because I was pretty close to the birds. And I had just quit for the day. It's been a cold day and the lights start dropping. And I just took this darn thing off and I'm down in a squat position pulling this off. And a pileated woodpecker flies to the tree right next to my goldfinch set. And I'm, I'm not behind the camera. I'm in this squat position and I stay frozen there waiting. But the bird then took off. I guess it was you know, moving too much even you know, in that squat. So the rest of the day then, the last two hours before this podcast, I've been out there setting up for the, a, a pileated woodpecker shot. Right, This is right off our porch. So it, I've had surprises like that virtually every day. We, uh, a couple, well, about what, a week ago now, I started shooting wood ducks that are in our vernal ponds. We, we, when we moved in, we made vernal ponds for uh, spotted salamanders and wood frogs. And I have wood duck boxes up. And every morning, there's a, a number of wood ducks at our pond. And I've been going out in the blind there. And, and again, this is something I, I in 30 years, I never photographed these guys. And, and it's like literally 200, yard, 200 feet from where I'm sitting right now that I can photograph these wood ducks. So it's uh, virtually every week, there's some surprise like that. You know, it's, and again, it's because I'm discovering Pennsylvania for the first time. People that are friends of mine that are, you know, like seeing the post go, boy, you are discovering Pennsylvania or rediscovering it. And it's really true. For, uh, for international. International, Marianne. Um, we have a whole list here. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we, we um, you know, we always tell people that we've been in the field now together, 34 years in the field, and we are still seeing new stuff every time we're out. I mean, maybe it's because we're out every day and, and everything in the field. But for instance, the one year in, in Kenya, um, the one cheetah that the BBC always 
filmed and stuff. She had her three large cubs. We actually saw she and the cubs swim across the swollen Talek River. We never saw cheetahs swim before. You know, so we see behavior like this. Well, here's another surprise. In all sorts of countries. So we're in Kenya and- uh, Stay in the camera. And Mary had to check the tires and, oh, and we, yeah. we were, uh, so we're, we're walking away from the group. This is before I had my knee replacement. So he had to help hold me up. And okay. as we're walking down, I notice a big puff adder that's laying in the rocks. And the puff adders are one of the like five worst venomous snakes in Africa. And I said to Mary, go get everybody so I can point this out so they can see, you know, how you gotta be really be careful when you're walking around that you just can't, you know, because there's you, things can kill you. And she had just started to go. No, it's bringing the people back. And I noticed that there were these other snakes all around the place. And I looked carefully and here what it was, was this was a big female puff adder who was giving live birth, they're ovoviviparous. And she's, and actually as I'm watching, she pops out a baby. And these babies, as soon as they come out of their, their birth sack, they break it and then they start crawling. So there's snakes crawling everywhere. So we're heading down over the rocks and, and he goes, freeze everybody. So we freeze and here are these snakes crawling through the rocks. So we raced back to the vehicle and where we had just sat on these rocks eating breakfast, these baby puff adders are now crawling through the rocks. And this is like a hundred feet away from where the puff adder female was. But by in five or 10 minutes, they had dispersed that much and everybody hops into the vehicle. And uh, uh, I, I caught two babies to take pictures of, I took them back to camp, took shots. And then I, we came back in the afternoon and I let them go. And at that point then I could count how many babies there were because shortly after they give birth, the babies shed. So I could count the sheds and there were like 47 or 49 sheds of these babies. <laughs> they were everywhere. Wow. Our, our guides don't go back our there Our guides to never eat. went back to that after spot that. again. It was like, you know, this isn't going to happen every year, but you know, it was like, ooh, can't go back there now. So that's why it's so much fun, no matter how many times, days in a row, we're at a place we always see something different, you know? And we, we pride ourselves in, because we were both biology majors and being field biologists and field naturalists, that we love to, to study this stuff and learn it because then we know the behavior and we can prep our people that are with us on tours, like now watch for this because this might happen, be ready to photograph this. And it, it makes it fun for us and we learn every day. I used to do that with my kids. Um, every time that we went out, it was, let's look for something new, something you haven't seen before. And it was yeah. easy when they were younger, of course, but now they're, 22, 21, and, and 19, it's a little bit more difficult to find something that they haven't been able to observe. But I, I love those firsts that you get no matter where you're oh, at, yeah. even, even at home. Yep, like you said. yep, definitely. So another question that we had from uh, Bruce Haley, what does the future of photography look like for the both of you? I know you shoot Olympus. That's going to continue, I would assume. So, you know, gear-wise, um, and then, of course, is there anything that you would like to do that you have not been able to do? Well, to answer the second part, really not. Uh, I feel like I'm a salmon that swam up the river. I'm old now. 
and and beginning to fall apart and i've uh, successfully bred and there you go but um uh so we don't have any kind of like uh objective that man we haven't done this yet that we're really anxious to do uh things might come up in that regard but uh I, i'm i'm a a happy salmon you know i, I feel like uh, i've had a real complete life there yeah i've and, missed africa the most out of this last year it's like i I'm rejuvenated. I, I I find myself in a tent in Africa, so I can hardly wait to get back to there. But you know, you mentioned Olympus, and we were uh, we. I started with Canon, then we switched to, to Nikon, Nikon when Mary got in. Then we went back to Canon, and then uh, a couple years ago, Olympus uh, sent us some gear, uh, as they did to other professionals, just to see if uh, we'd want to use it. And it has rejuvenated our photography. Um, I am a, I, I had never been as excited about equipment, never was excited about equipment, it was always a tool. But um, I, I love this stuff because of the features that it has that have, has allowed me to do things that um, have pushed the creative envelope in, in innumerable ways. So- uh, And with the Olympus, because it's it's smaller gear it's the micro four thirds system and and everything so the lenses the cameras are, are still like a normal size but the lenses are all smaller so i can carry a full pack of photography gear of maybe 15 18 pounds anywhere in the field now where before i was up to like maybe 30 pounds and i am totally bionic from the waist down i've had four back surgeries i just had both hips replaced and i have two new knees so the lighter gear is very nice for traveling in the field um and I, olympus has made it really good that way yeah they have a lens right now that's that virtually no one has i have it uh that's a one 150 to 400 with a, a 1.25 converter so it goes up to the equivalent of a thousand millimeter and you can hand hold that bugger i, I usually use a tripod you know if i'm going to be at a blind or whatever but sometimes I'll, I'll uh, just have it in the car or if I'm going on a hike, I'm just wearing it. And I can take razor sharp pictures. I'll try to brace it on a tree or on my knee if I'm sitting down. But, uh, you know, it's just given freedom that I, I didn't have when I had big gear, so. And a lot of people who have switched because of us and other people are really finding it fun and enjoyable again to photograph because they don't have the big heavy gear to travel with or to lug around in the field yeah it's it's funny because i'll be at a place like a couple years ago i was down at walking the hatchie in florida and there were all these guys and same as like conowingo dam in maryland everybody had the big glass you know and and, and uh at walk at a hatchie it's a big long boardwalk it's probably close to a mile if you walk the whole thing and People are carrying this, you know, as I did, you know, 20, 30 pounds worth of equipment. And I'm walking along there with a monopod and the equivalent of 600 or 840 at this point. And I'm sure people they didn't know who I was or whatever. And, and it was like, oh, he's not a player. You know, he's got this little stuff. And I'm thinking, man, you guys don't have a clue. You know, I I can go back and forth and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm fast and I'm, you know, I'm able to do it without pain and, uh, it's it's like you're missing the boat um you can see i'm like i'm an evangelist on this because i really <laughs> am excited about the gear it's really it has changed my life mm -hmm. and mary just came in and looked. <laughs>
We've heard that from a lot of guests who've, who've switched to mirrorless and some of the lighter yeah. equipment that way with Nikon and Canon as well and Fuji. Yeah. And, and the thing but we've had mirrorless. Olympus. Yes. Go ahead. No, I just, uh, Ron Niebrugge, a, a friend of the show, also shoots Olympus and, and loves it in Alaska and spoke highly of it. But mate, Yeah, you know why he shoots Olympus? Because we, we visited him and I okay. showed him what we got and then he contacted Olympus and uh, and there it is. So right on. it's a. Uh, what would you highlight I, specifically about Olympus? If you could say, you said there were a whole list of things, but if you could pick a couple of your favorite attributes of this gear, aside from the size and weight, what would the, what would it be? Pro capture. Hmm. The feature no, pro capture. Mark, sorry. Yeah, and, and what pro capture is, is you you press the shutter halfway down and it engages the the camera and it records 35 frames continuously in a, in a loop when you fire the camera it will take that picture but it also because it's been recording in the camera buffer it will now write to the card the previous 35 frames so can you imagine that uh, a bird is perched here and flies. Well, you know, almost always you miss it. You know, it's, it's so hard. Well, if you're on pro capture and you're engaging, it flies, you fire, but you step back in time and you get it. Mm. So when I was in Texas, we had a group and I think four of the six people switched to Olympus afterwards. Including the one ranch owner. And the ranch owner, who has shot with many professionals, said to me at the end of two days, this is not a brag, this is what he said, that what I got in two days because of ProCapture, not because of my skill, you couldn't get in a lifetime. Because I was getting, you know, Lincoln sparrows, you know, doing the painted bunnings leaping in the air, birds jump. That pro capture feature was just incredible. When you're shooting with someone and you say, hey, look what I got, they'll say you're cheating <laughs> because the camera's doing it. But it's really been a, an incredible feature. Then there's like uh, in-camera uh, stacking that- Live composite. Live uh, in-camera focus stacking where basically, you know, you're getting great depth of field without software. Uh, this live composite, which is like a... Which left us do fireflies, lightning bugs last year at our house, which was so much fun because once it just records like new... Yeah, uh, how it works is after you take a base exposure, the, the base exposure stays. The light isn't additive, but any light that's brighter than the light that you originally recorded is now recorded. So if you had a dusk scene of a stream or whatever, and you expose for that, and then the lightning bugs came out, and their bright little uh, bioluminescence is brighter than the ambient light, that's registering. But you, so you could have it on for two hours or three hours, and those lightning bugs are going everywhere, but your ambient light never changes for the original scene. Mm. So you get magic. You know, it's just, uh, you don't have to, you imagine like you're up in the Himalayas and you have a tent and you illuminate the tent from the inside for glowing. And then you want to get the star trails and, and whatever. And you wouldn't have to worry about any other light overexposing that tent because that light's already been exposed for. It, it's, uh, I, you know, there's several different features like that that just, 
it, it just it's like hey let's use this today you know and and it sparks enthusiasm no kidding forgive me on the pronunci pronunciation but uh polani mohan i believe uh asked if you'd used it on the northern lights at all or if you had the opportunity to we haven't had that yet we haven't been up in alaska or anywhere in the northern hemisphere to get northern lights yet but it would work it would work and and the the thing about that versus say a time exposure with traditional cameras is you actually see the image as it's going so when you get what you want you can stop you it. stop it so imagine like you're in the desert southwest which we're going shortly and we have a lightning storm well we have the ambient light you know say towards dusk and a lightning storm's going and and the light and when it's like man i got all the all the the ones I want there. And you don't have to worry about having it on time exposure where the ambient light would just build and build and build on your foreground. That doesn't happen. So it's a, it's a super feature for, for landscapes and things like that. I like it. What's the model? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> virtually all of, all of them. Even oh, no the kidding. Mark II, M1X, the Mark III. Yeah, and here's the thing, and this is what what I, I think people miss the boat on on for photography. You might spend a fortune, as I have, on like flash equipment, you know, just because the flash equipment now is an adjunct to my still photography. Well, you could get a Olympus camera and still be a Nikon or Canon or Sony shooter, and for like nine hundred bucks for the or eight hundred bucks for the one pro model and the 12 to 100 millimeter pro lens, you know, you'd, you'd have something that would be a tool for, hey, I can shoot this now because I got this piece of gear for it. You know, so you don't have to like trash your Canon or Sony or Nikon or whatever, but here's the tool, just like it would be for a, a Wimberley tripod and a real, or a Wimberley head and a tr uh, really right mm -hmm. stuff tripod. There's $2,000, you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah, very useful. Just to add on to that question for myself, um, have you tried them in camera traps at all? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. success. Yeah, uh, in fact, uh, on my e-junkie uh, sales point, I have a, a whole book on a, a whole book on high-speed flash and camera traps, and I, I've done quite a bit. In fact, uh, probably. Uh, Career-wise, I might be mo known more for electronic flash work than than almost anything else, because uh, I've done a lot with with uh, high-speed flash and, and camera traps. And if you want to get started in that, I think the best piece you could buy is something called a Range IR by a company called Cognosis, and it's about 175 to 200 dollar uh, piece of equipment that's about a uh, uh, the size of a pack of cards, and it will uh, interface with either a flash or a camera. It works by an infrared. So if you break, if it breaks the beam, it will fire either your camera or your flashes. And uh, that has been a whole, in fact, that'll be what I'll be doing a little bit more mm -hmm. as the summer goes by. I'll be doing some camera trap stuff now too. Um, but that's a lot of fun. And and again, it's like $200 and it opens up a whole new world of, of photography. So the Olympus camera that you have or are available are work very well with the Cognosys camera traps. Yeah, I was just, setup. 
it's just a cable like it, it yeah. plugs into uh but they're the, units uh, too though as far as yeah for the weatherproofing for people who want to leave it out and lock it overnight kind of oh, thing yeah. or leave yeah. it for a week it's compatible that way it'd be neat to yeah. have a camera i mean I, I want to pick up one of these units and start playing with that and you know part of the direction i've been receiving is is to go to sony because that's what it was kind of built for i believe but some of those tools those attributes that you just mentioned about the olympus camera bodies are very appealing so if it would do the camera trapping and add that capability to my kit bonus right so i, I, yeah, like, I, I, I will research that further yeah, Cognizus has made the, this, uh, you know, the system of, of yeah. weatherproofing and, and a battery that goes, to, so you can have unmanned long-term shooting. Exactly. And I know they started with Canon and Nikon for that, and I guess they, they branched out to Sony. I haven't uh, been in communication with them if they have a, okay. a power source for the Olympus for that as well. I know they started with Canon and Nikon on that because uh, Sony wasn't even a player when they were first developing that. Right. Okay. Well, it would just be a quick email or phone call to find out. So, yeah, cool. They're a great outfit too. Really wonderful people. Fun to play with. Yeah. We haven't even touched on the flash photography. What do we, what do we want to keep? Do you guys have other questions you want to, how's time and stuff? I've got, I've got a few questions from, from the okay. group. Um, so first of all, and, and, maybe touched on this just slightly do you have an opinion on the smaller sensor sony's that have been released and i'm thinking no. probably the 6000 series no because no. we don't have any experience with it so i really can't answer that i don't either i don't know don or mark i don't know if either i you don't do. well you know well, my well, i could though because I could do what a lot of internet people do. You know, they don't have any experience with something, but they spout off with a complete opinion on it. But no, I'll pass. Well, the question was for opinion. It wasn't necessarily experience. <laughs> well, I have because I have no experience with it. <laughs> um, so is there anything you find that Olympus can't do? Are there any downsides that you've seen after moving from, from Canon? Maybe the noise at first. There might be a, a more of a noise issue for higher ISOs, but then we have like a Topaz AI mm -hmm. uh, or Topaz Denoise, and that's, um, you know, that's solved that problem. So, um, no, no. In, I think in fact, uh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think that's to be expected a little bit with the smaller sensor, right? And you're, yeah. you know, you're still getting a high performance sensor, but it is smaller, so you're, packing those uh pixels in a little bit tighter space which is going to create a little bit more noise so that that would be an expectation for me but you find that uh modern software is able to handle that just fine yeah yes and it, it seems that with each of each new pro camera model the noise seems to get a little bit better so they're mm -hmm. actually addressing it don't you think the more no. three no they're oh, the same sensor no oh, never mind I thought the Mark II was better. Yeah. The Topaz <laughs> products have done a nice job of, of handling some of those challenges, though. Yeah, it really has. They, they so, continue to update yeah. that. What? Sorry, what ISO are you are comfortable going to when well, you're... I, I, I use ISO 1600 almost as a, my default. Okay. And uh, when I'm using Pro Capture, I, I go up to ISO 3200. 
And I've, I've used ISO 5000 on occasion, uh, but I, I, uh, I like to do that if, if there's some brightness, <laughs> because if, it, if it's mud light, you get, you know, you get noise. And I think, I mean, if it's, if it's muddy light, it's muddy light. You know, it's, there's a, maybe you shouldn't even be taking pictures at that point. But uh, 1600, I'm really, really comfortable with. And uh, if there's a little noise with that, I can certainly address that. But um, on a normal, an uncropped image, that, that noise hasn't been an issue at all. And if, if that is a little bit of a limitation, when I think of the trade-off that I have in, in flexibility and, uh, and creative abilities now, I'll take that trade any any day of the week because, mm -hmm. uh, as Mary said, and so many people that have switched have said it has made photography fun again, mm -hmm. and and we hear that from a lot of people because they're they're not burdened by weight for one, and then they have those things like live composite and focus bracketing and things like that. I've shot in our hollow yard here chipmunks that by accident the day before I was shooting something in, in with focus bracketing and then I didn't turn it off and I'm shooting a chipmunk and the chipmunk was still and there it is racking the, and I get this shot that is like sharpness from nose to the rocks behind and it's like man I never got shots like that before you know it's just um the one the one thing we didn't mention about Olympus which I think is really cool I mean we said about it's smaller gear, so it's easier to hand hold. But the image stabilization, at least in the pro cameras and lenses, are both in the lens and in the camera body. So it's it's you really get some good stabilization if you're hand holding, um, and that's made a big difference with some of the images that we've gotten. You know, and um, just again on on this point, we were we were in in uh, Costa Rica and. One of the, the participants had this, as I used it, it had like a 500 millimeter cannon on a M1X, so and then a heavy tripod, and there was a volcano hummingbird about a uh, hundred yards at another spot from where we were doing the feeders, and the person that had the big lens went there once and wasn't there and came back and it was like I'm not hauling that gear back and forth. Now I'm there with my 300, which is the equivalent of 600, and still at my tripod, but it was nothing for me to walk down there with that lightweight, check it out, nothing there at the moment, I'll come back to the feeders, go back later. And you had that freedom to be able to do that because there was no, no weight issue, you know, that you were just flexible. And uh, that person now shoots Olympus, Olympus as well. <laughs> How about yeah. now for landscape photography, you talked about some of the features like the in-camera composite, um, focus stacking, that kind of thing, which is an incredible advantage for landscape photographers, saves you time in post. What about uh, lens selection? Because I know, you know, with the smaller sensor, you're getting double the focal length, right? Do they well, make they have a, uh, shorter lenses? A lens uh, the lens that I use often for that, uh, for some stuff like that, is a uh, a seven to fourteen millimeter, which would be a fourteen to twenty eight. And I, I'm we're, we're preparing a lecture for uh, on macro for for our camera club. So I was shooting some pictures today to illustrate uh, angle of view and working distance. 
And with that seven millimeter lens, I was, my lens was an inch and a half, the front element from my subject. So, you know, the, the minimum focus was unbelievably close. So imagine now if you're shooting, say like, and I've done quite a bit of this, spring wildflowers where the flip out screen that I don't have to be laying on the ground, but I can use this flip out screen. And I'm only a few inches away from hepatica or trout lily or whatever, and getting a good image size, but getting the landscape as well. And those images are so effective. I did a wood turtle like that recently. And the comments were like, you know, that it was just stunning because it was, you know, you, you think of a turtle, you're, you're doing your kind of like middle telephoto kind of shot. It's all frame filling. You don't get the habitat. Well, this had the whole thing. It was like the wood turtle and where it lives, you know, and that was with that seven to 14. So, uh, and I wasn't like an inch and a half away, but I may have been say 12 inches away. So the, the closest of the working distance for stuff like that, um, they, they have a, a fisheye that's, uh, you do have the, the fisheye effect, but there is a fisheye correction, but then it makes it an eight millimeter, which is like a 16. Mm -hmm. um, there's a good variety of lenses there and the image stabilization on them is very, very good. And they're all pro lenses and the cameras are weatherproofed as well. They, uh, I was just talking to an Olympus guy and he was saying, you literally, if you have a lens on one of the pro lenses, you can wash your camera off in a sink under running water. You know, if you want to get dust, I never did it. But he says, hey. but we have used it out in rainstorms and the falcons are in Antarctica with snow and stuff and didn't have to worry about having rain covers and stuff on them. So it worked very well. So it's a nice feature. Yeah, for sure. That question came from Bruce Haley, by the way. And then uh, Jerry Hine just has more of a comment. He said uh, the new DxO ProRes further reduces noise problem. So that's another option for your post and do you guys yeah, have yeah we had, we had heard about no but we had heard about that the dxo <laughs> um software was good for noise um we just haven't tried it ourselves but somebody else did tell us that as well another thing that uh when you were saying about landscapes uh a couple of the the pro cameras have something called a, a live nd live neutral density and it actually does electronic neutral density filtering so and again, you can see the result. You can actually, you know, like you, you dial it in and you see like the angel hair water, the cotton candy water. There's no, you know, there's no guesswork like, well, I need one thirtieth or I need a half second. You, you adjust that thing and you see it in real time. So you get the effect you want to get. And like I've done it with seascapes down in uh, the Falklands with waves coming in and going over, you know, it's, and give that ethereal look it's uh there's also really build, cool. there's also keystone correction which is in camera as well so you can actually if you're doing like the buildings or trees you know in the fall away stuff you can actually correct the keystone effect in camera electronically which corrects the picture right there as well i imagine some of the other mirrorless cameras might have that too but uh you know they certainly have that with the olympus and the um the other thing that olympus is you know olympus has sold Olympus cameras to uh, this outfit. And there was a whole bunch of uh, 
worry that it was going to go like their their uh, bio computers that the same company did but the company is looking at the olympus cameras for sports and wildlife and nature that that's the market that they're looking at not portraits or whatever so it really bodes well for you know for us you know for for people that are doing this because that's where that's the target of the you know their management now so it's um it's good very gratifying good that's good to Excellent. hear i know there was some worry about that that purchase you know with what would happen yeah. to the olympus brand yeah. okay i went out and i bought a a whole oh, replacement of our gear i just duplicated everything we had because i thought only once do yeah yeah but you know like if a lens went and they went out of business i'd still have you know a, a, a brand new lens out of the box because i thought i ain't ever changing again i love this stuff and uh if they go out of business i'll just be careful with what i have but i'm i don't think that's going to be the issue i think they're they're in there and that yes. uh that, that lens i was saying that 150 to 400 they they were uh they underestimated its popularity by about 300 percent it's uh uh the the demand for it worldwide is unbelievable so just with that alone they have a you know an absolute winner so and that lens is it's unbelievable uh the equivalent of 300 to a thousand and it will take a 1.4 converter very nicely and even a 2x but i don't like the 2x this is rufus she's come to say hello to everybody <laughs> hi rufus <laughs> Well, I'm going to agree with Gordon Ilg. It's it's nice to his comment was nice to listen to two pioneers of the profession and, you know, where you've come from, where you've gone and even where you'll continue to go. It's it's been a fun conversation. I, I'm excited actually to hear, you know, what you'll bring to the summit as well. Yeah, yeah I'm looking forward a... to your presentation. Yeah, thank you. Well, we're not ready to give it up yet. I mean, we still love what we're doing and we love sharing this. And, you know, we might not do some trips to some places, but we'll pick up other places. So we're not ready to give it up yet. Even if our bodies sometimes say they can't keep going, we're going to keep going. Yeah, I I, uh, I was really looking forward to being there live this year because it, it is really, really fun to inter interact with folks. And you know, the, the thing also that's um, for any professionals out there or you you guys as workshop leaders and, and people that you have no idea the influence and the uh, maybe the, uh, the, the esteemed position that you might be in that you don't even think of it. And it's so incumbent upon us to actually you know like give people the time because you know like you, 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 like i never thought of myself as anything but then you, you talk to someone afterwards and they they say oh you know it's um uh, but we also like what you know at the live summits we've enjoyed working with the students and all the sex and i'm now on the foundation board of nampa so we will be having you know i'll be dedicating the next three years to helping to help nampa come forward with all of the programs that the foundation is responsible for so it'll be um it's an honor and it, and it'll be fun 
Also, re regarding that, you know, the Lifetime Achievement Award, uh, one, it makes you feel real old. But uh, uh, when I think of like guys like Leonard Lee Rue, who also have it, and Erwin Bauer, and, uh, you know, people that, unfortunately, a lot of the folks coming up uh, don't, don't even know these people as, as like historical pioneers that were so groundbreaking. And uh, they, um, People ought to do their homework because it's it's so easy today. And, and like Leonard Rue, who had that Lifetime Achievement Award, when he started and went to Kenya the first time, he had a ISO 10 for Kodachrome and was doing work with that. And here I am at default of ISO 1600 with autofocus. So uh, uh, the pioneers did a heck of a job, I'll tell you. you know, so I'm, I'm very honored that we're in that group. So, Joe, as they've mentioned, Joe and Marianne will be giving a keynote presentation during the virtual summit next week. That's scheduled to be on Thursday, April 29th at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And there will be a Q&A session after to follow that presentation. So that if you do have other questions that you think of between now and then, feel free to join us there. And if you haven't registered for summit yet, we still have availability to register for for that virtual program so there is a two full days of lots of great presentations and lots of great information so i wanted to thank you joe and mary for joining us tonight and for for giving us this time it's always a pleasure to hear you guys speak i've i've seen you speak before and your enthusiasm is very very encouraging and uplifting and it's nice to hear that you're optimistic that nature photography still goes will continue to still do well all right I'm thank you it's been it's been enjoyable to share some time with everybody so thank you <laughs> we just we mary said put it down put it down but uh we didn't know you know how the questions would go so we had a whole bunch of different things that uh if we needed to put it down mary put it down <laughs> topics for Nampa podcast <laughs> But things like uh, the Komodo Dragon night cruise, uh, the uh, incident <laughs> enough, at Morton Copies, the, uh, BBC, enough, enough. the BBC it Radio. It was fun. We'll see everybody next week. You don't want to give away all your great points for your presentation next week, though. No, Those are just no, no. teasers. The Bo Derek thing. <laughs> oh. Now there's a teaser, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so thank you very much for everybody for joining us this evening. And if you haven't already, definitely subscribe to the Wild and Exposed podcast, and that will give you the feed for the Nampa podcast, which we release a long episode once a month and a short episode once a month. So, and then you can always hear past episodes on the Nampa website, as well as through your favorite podcast listening platform. So thank you to Ron and Mark for keeping us from a technical standpoint moving along here and to supporting this podcast for us. So take a look at the Nampa website where you can sign up for Virtual Summit and we'll see you next week. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you guys. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.